Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Assassins have been killing the powerful and the famous for thousands of years. Political ambition, revenge, anger and ideology have driven the dagger into an emperor's back or helped pull the trigger that ended a president or prime minister's rule. But do assassinations work? Are they effective in achieving the ambitions of the assassin? Or do they cause far more unintended consequences, turmoil and a butterfly effect across history that just ends up impacting all of us? Well, I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and with the recent drone attacks on the Kremlin in mind, attacks that were said to be targeting Putin himself, I wanted to take a deep dive into this morbid history of personal killing. To find out more, I invited award-winning journalist and author John Withington onto the podcast. John is the author of Assassin's Deeds, a history of assassination from ancient Egypt to the present day, and it's through his expert knowledge that we explore the five most impactful assassinations in history. Hi John, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? All right, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Great to have you on the podcast. You are, after all, an expert on assassinations. And we live in a time when attempted assassinations by weaponized drones are in the news on a regular basis. We need only think of the alleged attempted assassination on Putin, that attack on the Kremlin that happened a few weeks ago, as a personal example, that the threat of death stalks those who walk the corridors of power on a regular basis. But this is nothing new, is it, John? Is it fair to say that attempts to assassinate high-profile political figures, well, they're as old as the profession itself? Yes, I was looking when I was researching my book, Assassin's Deeds, for the earliest assassination I could find. And the earliest one I could find was of an Egyptian pharaoh in 2333 BC. So, yes, I think it's reasonable to assume that as long as there have been people wielding power, there has probably been assassination. Ooh, why was this Egyptian pharaoh killed? Well, don't forget, we're in the midst of history here, and the first account we have of his killing was written something like 1,700 years after it happened. But what we do know is it was a time of turmoil in in Egypt, and he seems to be in somebody who came together and uh, he married, for example, the I think the daughter of one of the, an earlier pharaoh. So it looks as though he was trying to bring the country together and All we know is that it was a difficult time and that maybe that was the reason for his assassination. But it could also have been simply dynastic ambition, because when I was looking at the motives for assassination, just dynastic ambition, the fact that one member of the family fancied taking over from another was often the main motive. So maybe it was something as simple as that, that somebody else fancied a crack at being top dog. 
greed and that human desire for power, the motivating factor behind assassinations. And I'm sure we'll touch on lots of the motivating factors as we go through this history today. And and with this in mind, John, and given your expertise in the long history of assassination, I was thinking that we could go through perhaps the, the five most impactful assassinations in history. And this is a new one for the Warfare podcast, because I'm not going to limit you to modern history. We usually go from Napoleon to now. I'm going to give you the task of all of recorded history. Are you willing to take up the challenge? I'll give it a go. (laughs) Okay, then. Where should we start? Well, I wanted to start quite a long time ago with perhaps the most famous of the ancient assassinations, actually, Julius Caesar. Ah, yes. 44 BC. And one of the reasons I've chosen that, really, is to do with the assassin, Brutus. I'll come on to that in a moment. We all know the story of Julius Caesar, I think, pretty well, don't we? That um, king was a dirty word in Rome. The, pre- the last king of Rome had been kicked out about 450 years before his tail between his legs. But Julius Caesar had been appointed dictator. Now, dictator was an official position in Rome, but it was normally for a few months at a time of great crisis. And Julius Caesar had just been appointed dictator for life. And this alarmed a lot of people who thought this is the end of the Roman Republic. We're moving back to a monarchy of some kind. And so a number of them got together and decided they were going to kill Caesar. They were going to assassinate Caesar. Famously, of course, it happened on the 15th of March, the Ides of March, a traditional day for settling debts in Rome. And Caesar's wife had had a bad dream, Calpurnia, and she tried to persuade him not to go to the Senate that day when the Senate were going to apparently heap various honours on him. Other people urged him not to go. It was not particularly surprising that there were people who wanted to kill Caesar. He would have been well aware of that. But other people said to him, well, look, Caesar, suppose you don't go to the Senate and you say, well, I didn't go to the Senate yesterday because my wife had a bad dream. You know, it's... Are they really going to think you're kind of leadership material? So Caesar went to the Senate. There was the famous interchange with the soothsayer when uh, Caesar sees the soothsayer who has warned him against the Ides of March and says to the soothsayer, slightly mockingly, the Ides of March are come. And the soothsayer replies, I, Caesar, but not gone. And when he got to the Senate, um, Casca was the first of the conspirators to stab him. There were 22 others. All of them landed a blow. The last blow was struck by Brutus, who was, Shakespeare's words, Caesar's angel, Caesar's great friend, the son of Caesar's favourite mistress. Some people even said Caesar's son, though that's probably unlikely. But this was the unkindest cut of all. And when Brutus struck, Caesar covered his face, gave himself up to death. Now, oddly for the conspirators, the assassins, they lacked the killer instinct and they didn't really seem to have any kind of plan of what they were going to do once they killed Caesar. There was discussion, shall we just throw his body in the Tiber and kill Mark Antony, who was his main supporter, his key ally? And in the end, they didn't do that. No, they let Mark Antony make this rather inflammatory speech over Caesar's body, you know, the friends, Romans and countrymen, the famous speech in Shakespeare's version. And they had no real plan to what to do next. They sort of assumed that once Caesar was out of the way, the Roman Republic would kind of spontaneously reinvigorate itself. And instead, what they got was 14 years of civil war. Brutus and Cassius, who had a lean and hungry look, if you remember, Brutus and Cassius, two of the conspiracies, they were very quickly defeated. The civil war went on for 14 years. And 
what emerged was not the Roman Republic being revived, but the Roman Empire, the opposite of the Roman Republic. But Brutus is the figure I really wanted to concentrate on here, because Brutus, in a sense, it became the most iconic assassin in history, I think. Even Mark Antony, Brutus's arch enemy, said this was the noblest Roman of them all. And Mark Antony said that although the other conspirators were activated by envy of great Caesar, Brutus acted out of what he thought, mistakenly obviously in Antony's view, but what he thought was the general good, working for the good of the people. And so this idea of Brutus as the idealistic, unselfish, public-spirited assassin kind of came out of that episode. And over the decades, the centuries since, Brutus's stock has gone up and down according to the prevailing political climate. So Dante, in the 14th century, put Brutus in the last circle of hell along with Satan and Judas Iscariot. Then the French Revolution, Brutus became a hero. Busts of Brutus were put up everywhere in France because he was seen as the embodiment of republican virtue. Then rather annoyingly for the Republicans, when Charlotte Corday assassinated the Republican Marat in his bath, she took on the mantle of Brutus. She said, I'm killing a tyrant. Even later still, so 1865, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, the first American president to be assassinated, the man who killed him in a theatre, if you remember, John Wilkes Booth, once he'd shot Lincoln in the VIP box, he leapt down to the stage, breaking his ankle in the process, incidentally, and shouted, Sick Semper Tyrannis, so always to tyrants, the words that Brutus is supposed to have spoken when he assassinated Julius Caesar, and the motto, incidentally, of the state of Virginia. So I think Brutus, we can say, is probably the most resonant assassin in history. What are the other lessons that we can take from this specific example? I mean, you mentioned that Rome descends into 14 years of civil war. Is is perhaps, of course, Brutus as an icon of the assassin is one lasting legacy. But is another that assassinations are often just not very successful. They don't achieve the aims that the assassin wants them to. And actually, when you remove that person that has such a control on power, you leave a power void that leaves a nation in disarray. Now, we could say that in the long run, this could work out. It didn't seem to so much for Rome, at least in the immediate sense. But you could perhaps create in the longer run a more vibrant democracy. But after an assassination, an assassination always begets turmoil. Well, certainly the law of unintended consequences is very active after assassinations. And we saw it with Julius Caesar. Um, I'm hoping to talk later about the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And if Ah, you want the law of unintended consequences, (laughs) well, the First World War would probably be a, a pretty unintended consequence. So I think that these are hard things to control. You know, human societies are very complex things. And killing a man can have all sorts of consequences, particularly if it's a very powerful man. And I think in um, The Lord of the Rings, there's an episode where they're discussing whether they should murder Gollum. And they mention this to Gandalf, the great magician, the wisest man in the book. And, And Gandalf says, be careful with this stuff, because not all ends are known, even to the wise. So I think you're absolutely right that it's very difficult to predict the consequences. For what it's worth, I did an analysis of 200-odd assassinations, and I tried to work out whether they were successful. 
Now, they were all successful in the sense that the victim died. That's what made them assassinations. But what I wanted to work out was whether the plotters, the assassins or the assassin, would have been happy with the kind of long-term outcome. And for what it's worth, I reckon that in about 80-odd cases, they would have been unhappy. But in about 130 cases, they would have been happy. Having said that, I should also add that most assassination attempts fail. The vast majority of assassination attempts fail. Well, we could do a whole podcast on that, on the most high-profile, unsuccessful assassination attempts in history. But take us down next in your list, John. OK, well, the next one is the only British Prime Minister to be assassinated. One of the things that intrigues me about this is that he's not a particularly well-known figure. I'm going to try and guess this one. I think from my British history classes at A-level, it was Spencer Percival. But you know what? For my sins, I know absolutely nothing else about him apart from the fact that the poor man was assassinated. Correct. Well, you've got his name, and I suspect if you went out in the street and asked people, not too many would get that. Known in his time as Plucky Percival. Not a particularly colourful figure, I don't think. But nonetheless, Prime Minister at a very important time, because the Napoleonic Wars were raging. So he became Prime Minister in 1809 and he was Prime Minister until 1812. And during that time, the Napoleonic Wars started to turn against Napoleon. So Napoleon got his first really major setback in the Peninsular War in Spain and Portugal, with the British playing an important role, particularly the Duke of Wellington. Britain was seizing French colonies all over the world. France's attempted blockade of Britain was starting to fall apart. So actually, during Percival's time, you could argue that the Napoleonic War started to turn around. So he's not a totally insignificant figure. But his death was nothing to do with any of that. So there was a man called John Bellingham, who was a kind of import-export agent, and he was imprisoned for debt in Russia, probably unjustly. And when have we heard this before? He was unhappy about what he felt was the rather lacklustre attempts of the British government to free him. He thought they'd rather abandon him. And he became very resentful in particular about a man called Granville Leveson Gower, who was the British ambassador to Russia, but also an MP. And on the 11th of May, 1812, armed with pistols, John Bellingham went to the House of Commons, deciding to kill Granville. So he hung around in the lobby for a while and uh, Granville didn't appear. But while he was waiting, Spencer Percival appeared and Bellingham thought, well, yeah, actually, Percival did me no favours either. I put a petition to Percival and he refused to put it before Parliament. So at point blank range, Bellingham shot Percival dead. Now, this was a time of considerable turmoil because the Napoleonic Wars, although they were turning in Britain's favour. They led to enormous hardships. I mean, you know, this is these have been going on for 20 years. Great hardship. There was also the Luddites who were smashing machinery, worried that the AI of their day, you know, mechanisation, was going to destroy all their jobs. So Bellingham, an attempt was made by the mob to free him from the carriage that was taking him to prison. It, that failed. And justice moved a bit quicker in those days. In Within a week... Bellingham was charged, tried, convicted and hanged. That was 1812. And poor Percival. A lot of people do well out of politics, I think, don't they? Percival didn't. Percival was virtually penniless when he died and he, had a, he left 13 children and his family were only saved from poverty by the charity of Parliament. Wow. I never knew that about Percival. What a way to go from being 
Prime Minister, you think you might be able to to make a penny or two. I think Prime Ministers certainly do today. Look who's currently in power. But uh, didn't seem to have the inclination or perhaps the time to be able to generate that sort of finance. But for me, what's fascinating about that story is the fact it's the use of pistols that you can get that close to a Prime Minister. This must have been pretty early days of that threat. At the top of this podcast, I discussed drones and how they're able to fly in and get close to these world leaders because it's a new threat and air defence is really hard to do. Were pistols the drones of their day? You make a a number of interesting points there, I think. First thing is, it's really bizarre, isn't it, to think that a man could walk into the lobby of the House of Commons with his pistols and nobody apparently bothered. I suppose more people were armed in those days. I mean, I'm old enough also to remember when parliamentary security was not what it is today. I mean, that really is the legacy of the IRA bombing campaigns that started, I suppose, on the mainland in the 1970s. And before that, you know, a lot of buildings were pretty easy to walk into. Nobody searched you. But I think the other point about uh, the pistols is that one thing I looked at was the technology of assassination. And up until the 19th century, stabbing was the favourite method. And it was only in the 19th century, really, that guns, firearms started to overtake stabbing. But even when it was firearms, it tended to be the handgun at close quarters rather than the sniper's rifle. So I suppose if we think about a fictional assassin, a lot of people would think of the Jackal, you know, Frederick Forsyth's famous novel, The Day of the Jackal, a very skilled sniper who tries to kill President de Gaulle at a distance. He fails. Of all the assassinations that I looked at, I think only about 19 were actually successfully achieved at a distance. Virtually every other one involved getting up close and personal. So, yes, firearms changed the technology in some ways, but they didn't necessarily change the approach and technique, if you see what I mean. Or the intimacy. And I know it's weird to use that word, but you have to have such a drive to go in and to almost look that person in the eye and to, like you say, either stab them, as with Julius Caesar, or to pull that trigger. And we can think about others who have been killed by by pistols, by firearms. Uh, US President William McKinley was also shot by somebody who had become unemployed and was radicalised by anarchism. Again, a whole new wave of terrorism that was rising up. But it's around this period that over that hundred years that the pistol, I suppose, takes the place of the dagger as the primary weapon of assassinations. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, not just the Tudors from History Hit, I try to make sense of everything that baffled our early modern ancestors. Like, what do you do with your waist? If you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp. Would Henry VIII ever consider executing his wife, the Queen of England, Anne Boleyn? I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen? And why do men grow beards? During puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body, pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. What's next, John, in your history? Well, I'm going to move on to another new technology, the bomb. The bomb, okay. The bomb, which was used on the Russian Tsar Alexander II Ah, in 1881. The good Tsar, the grandfather of Tsar Nicholas II. Correct. And you say the good Tsar, Ed. It's interesting because, yes, Alexander II did various reforms. He emancipated the serfs. He brought in universal education, or certainly a version of it, tried to bring in a, a kind of constitution... A French nobleman once described the Russian method of government, the Russian constitution, if you like, as despotism tempered by assassination. But in fact, before Alexander II, only two czars had been assassinated. And as we say, so Alexander II was trying to do these various good things. There were, however, lots of people who felt he wasn't going far enough. And there was an organisation called the People's Will, a revolutionary organisation. And they condemned him to death. They had a revolutionary tribunal and they condemned Alexander II to death. And in 1880, they managed to secrete a huge bomb at the Winter Palace. Timing device, very sophisticated, set to go off when Tsar Alexander II was greeting a visiting dignitary and a number of other people. And it all worked perfect. The bomb went off, killed 11 people, but the Tsar was not among them because the dignitary had been delayed. And when the bomb went off, Alexander II was not there. But the people's will were not put off. Incidentally, if that had come off, it would have been the first assassination, successful assassination by bomb in history. But in 1567, there was a really peculiar episode when Lord Darnley the estranged husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, was staying in a house in Edinburgh. And the house blew up. Somebody had put two barrels of gunpowder. The house blew up and Lord Darnley was found in the grounds of the house, dead but strangled. And so no one really knows what had happened here. Was the gunpowder that was blowing up the house and the gunpowder, was that a way of getting Darnley out of the house so he'd be more vulnerable? Was the gunpowder plan A and that failed to kill him and the strangling plan B? Or were there two different assassination attempts on Darnley? One involving gunpowder, one involving strangling? Or was the gunpowder just a a red herring, something completely different? Anyway. It does remind me of another gunpowder plot Uh, (laughs) that also was thwarted. I'm not sure if it makes our list. But, you know, we're going to talk about Guy Thorks and the gunpowder plot. But, um, you know, I feel like we're deviating too much in this history. I've given you such a large task to go through the entirety of history. So I'll let you continue, John. <laughs> so um, the bomb in 1880 fails, but people's will don't give up. And so the next thing they do is they rent a shop on a route that they expect the Tsar to take every Sunday on his way to a military parade. And in the shop they make this immense mine and they have somebody ready to trigger it when Alexander's carriage goes past but Alexander and his people knew that there were assassination attempts 
kind of hovering around, you know, there was intelligence chatter. And so on the day, he changed his route. He didn't go past the shop. But unlike Brutus and co, the People's Will had got a plan B. They And the plan B involved throwing hand bombs, small bombs. So when Alexander came past in his armoured carriage, they, assassin number one, threw a bomb. And it injured the horses, killed one of the retinue, the escort, and Alexander II then got out of the carriage and tried to help the wounded, at which point assassin number two appears, throws the bomb at very close quarters, kills himself, but also fatally injures the Tsar. So altruism, if he'd been more like Alexander III who followed him, who had no truck with all this reform business, would he have stayed in the carriage? Might he not have been killed by the second bomb? Oh, that's really interesting to think. And also, would that make this the first suicide bomber in history? Well, uh, yes, uh, that's a very good question. I, I think that this was not intended as a suicide bombing, but that probably the plotters knew the risks. So I think there's a semantics issue here. I mean, what is generally regarded, I think, as the first suicide bombing assassination is of Rajiv Gandhi in 1991, which killed him and I think 14 other people. But it is semantics, isn't it, as to... I don't think this assassin went out to be killed. But equally... He would not have been surprised if the risk had been that, that he would be blown up. Was the the people's will part of that broader wave of anarchism during that period? The push to, to bring about and end the status quo, not only in Russia, but also globally as well? And, and if so, could we then link this into these waves of terrorism throughout history? And the fact that, of course, suicide bombing today is one of the prominent ways in which terrorist organisations carry out their politically motivated attacks. Yes, I think that you're absolutely right. There was a a lot of movements in Russia. The interesting thing in a way about people's will, and this I think is what shook the kind of the ruling class, if you want to call it that in Europe, was that people's will was a pretty much kind of man and dog operation. You know, I think never had more than about 50 people involved. Bit of a sort of ragtag army. And they were able to kill one of the most powerful emperors on earth. They also had this notion about, it was called the propaganda of the deed. So it's not that ideas create deeds, it's that deeds create ideas and that you need terrorist actions, if you want to call them that. You need bombings, murders, assassinations to kind of wake the working class up, to jolt them from their slumbers and make them rise up and take power. You see, this is interesting because it it takes me back to the fact that um, it was attacks like this, of course, that then coupled with the first introduction of the mass printing press and the fact that you could get newspapers all around the world alongside with expansion of railroad networks that would then allow these papers to be moved across entire countries and continents. And then you have the telegram at the same time that means that reports on these terrorist attacks can move all around the world. And so you mentioned before about how you had the Luddites who were kind of rejecting the AI of their day, but you also had these terrorists that were using the internet of their day, which was this first international mass media to promote the propaganda of their deeds. Absolutely. And I think Abraham Lincoln's assassination was thought to be one of the first events to which kind of everybody in America woke up to that news. And a little bit later, I want to talk about the first televised assassination, the first live 
assassination carried on television. And, of course, film and television were also, of course, hugely important. Oh, I'm not going to have a guess yet about which that was, but I'm going to have a go when we get there. I've got one more question about this assassination of Tsar Alexander II, though. Would we say that, you know, as with the pistol and the advent of this privatisation of what was once military power, you used to have to have large muskets and you wouldn't be able to conceal that and get into Parliament, but you could with pistols. Is that the same with these small hand bombs? Because you didn't need to rely on gunpowder at this point. It must have been dynamite. I don't think it was dynamite. I'm not sure what actually the explosive was. I would suspect it was a fairly basic explosive. I mean, gunpowder was used, potassium chlorate was used. But the point is, you're quite right that these are not particularly conspicuous objects. And in a crowd with not a lot of security, probably. And advancements in that military technology in those small bombs meant that you could have these small groups that can change the entire trajectory of an empire. A sobering thought. (laughs) A sobering thought and perhaps a warning across history. So what is next on our list, John? Well, I think I mentioned earlier, we can't leave out, I don't think, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, the interesting thing about the Archduke Franz Ferdinand story is everybody's sort of familiar with the outline of it. But in a way, this is a love story. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand was not a particularly attractive character, bad-tempered, a bully, but he truly loved his wife. And she was a penniless countess called Sophie Chotek, who he had married against the wishes of his family. And the penalty for that marriage was that their children were not allowed to succeed to the throne. They were disqualified from the succession. She was not to be called Her Imperial Highness. They were often not allowed to sit together at state occasions. And the Archduke really resented all of this. Oh, so royal controversies are nothing new, John. (laughs) They're nothing new. But there was a loophole, which is that the Archduke was also a field marshal in the Austrian army and the inspector general of the Austro-Hungarian army, this great empire, the Austro-Hungarian empire that stretched across Central Europe. And when he was acting in that capacity, he could take his wife with him and she could behave with all honour. And so on the 28th of June, 1914, their 14th wedding anniversary, the Archduke decided he would take Sophie to Bosnia, to Sarajevo, and they would inspect the army. Lovely sunny day. Now, we need to go back a little bit here. So Bosnia had been part of the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and it had been liberated, as had Serbia. Serbia got independence, but Bosnia was given to the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the resentment of a lot of people who lived there, particularly ethnic Serbs who lived there. And they formed this group called the Black Hand, who wanted to reunite Bosnia with Serbia. And one of the Black Hand was a man called Gavrilo Princip. And he and about half a dozen of his colleagues armed themselves with guns, bombs and cyanide tablets and set themselves out along the route. And the Archduke, like JFK after him, was in an open-top car, drove along the route. The bombers were revealed as a bunch of bungling amateurs, absolutely hopeless. One managed to throw a bomb, which injured one of um, the Archduke's retinue and gave Sophie a little wound on her cheek. None of the others managed to get a shot or a bomb away. The Archduke gets to the town hall and is in a pretty filthy temper. 
He's a bad-tempered man anyway. And so so he gives them a really good going over. And he says, I'm cancelling the whole of the afternoon's activities because I want to go and see the people who have been wounded in this attack in hospital. So they decide to do that. Unfortunately, one of the people wounded in the attack was the chief organiser of the event. And so they decided to go to the hospital. They changed their mind a couple of times about the route they were going to take to try to take a safe route. They changed their mind, but they didn't tell the Archduke's driver that they changed their mind. So the whole thing became a total shambles. The Archduke's car came to a stop outside a cafe and sitting in the cafe was Gavrilo Princip, one of the conspirators. And he looks out of the door and he can't believe his luck. There is the Archduke's car. So he comes out with his pistol, five yards range, shoots the Archduke, who throws himself across his wife to try to protect her. The second shot, probably aimed actually at the governor of Bosnia, who's in the car, but hits Sophie. And within minutes, the Archduke and Sophie are both dead. Wow. What a a sad, tragic love story, I guess, towards the end there. And you can actually go and visit that car as a remnant of that attack in Vienna Military Museum. I've been myself, and you can see those shots fired into the car itself that took their lives. And you've got to think of the legacies of this attack, the impact that it had on the world. Because, of course, we know that it's related. It does, it's not the sole reason that the First World War starts in any way, shape or form. We have covered this on the podcast at least three times, looking at all the ways in which the First World War began. But it did end an empire. It ended the Habsburg Empire, which had been around since the 1200s. Absolutely. And as you say, 37 days between the assassination and the outbreak of the First World War. You know, some people argue, well, you've got these two rival alliances facing each other, Austria and and Germany, Britain, France and Russia. There's going to be a flashpoint at some point. Interestingly, one of the assassins uh, had no doubt about the effect of their deed, and he said, uh, if I'd known what was going to happen, I would have sat on my bomb and blown myself to bits. As you say, it finished off the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Serbia didn't do Serbia much good either. Serbia lost a higher proportion of its population to disease and violent death than any other country. But uh, yes, it's um, again, you see... It, There's a slight parallel with Alexander II, isn't there? Alexander II got out of his carriage to go and help the wounded, the injured. The Archduke wanted to go and see the wounded and the injured in hospital. If they'd been slightly more selfish, less, you know, more ruthless characters, maybe they wouldn't have done that. There are other parallels too to that. You know, Michael Collins, the famous Irish revolutionary who was killed in an ambush, some of the people with him wanted the driver just to put his foot on the... When they started, when the assassins started firing, the, some people wanted the driver just to put his foot on the gas and get the hell out of here. But Collins insisted on staying and fighting it out. So impetuosity can be a bad thing there. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a sad warning, I guess, across history is what you're telling us there is, um, you know, don't have some sort of... Uh moral caring side to you and you might be able to survive an assassination attempt but then again if you're not caring you might also have a higher chance of being assassinated so i mean i'll leave you as the expert to to kind of give us some of some of the ways in which you can avoid assassinations or maybe that's your next book john i'm not sure well machiavelli did say that the easiest way to avoid assassination is to be a wonderful ruler and have your people love you but maybe that's easier said than done i'm not sure didn't julius caesar's people love him oh some of his people did and some of the you were you were talking earlier about turmoil and of course, 
in the time leading up to Caesar becoming dictator, there'd been plenty of turmoil. So, oh, yes, there were plenty of people in Rome who thought that Caesar was a, a wonderful man and that he was standing between them and chaos. And I suppose if you say 14 years of civil war followed him, maybe they did have a case of some kind. He kind of was. Hail Caesar. Okay, John, we're up to our final assassination on this list. Now, I've been racking my brains as, as you've been talking, trying to think about who could possibly have been the first assassination caught on camera. And I can't actually think. So you're going to have to tell us who has the absolutely awful accolade that goes down in history as being the first person to be caught on camera being assassinated. Right. Well, I've got to be very specific. It's the first one caught live. Okay. Because there were a couple of others who were caught on camera being assassinated, but the transmission did not go out live and in both cases went out some time after the actual event. But it's a rather... Odd one, actually. It's Lee Harvey Oswald. So Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of JFK. So we're not talking about JFK's assassination, which would have definitely been, was recorded on camera, but didn't go out live, but the assassination of Oswald himself. Correct. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. There was moving picture of Kennedy's assassination, but it was thought too horrific to transmit at the time. And I think it was three or four years, maybe even five years, before the pictures were actually transmitted. Now, I think probably all of us have seen them, haven't they? But but Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin, you said, of JFK. Some people, I suppose, would say the alleged assassin. Oh, I would say the alleged assassin. We've got to dive into some conspiracy theories here. I've got... I had the pleasure of spending a day with Priscilla McMillan only a few years ago before she died. And she is the one person that connects... Lee Harvey Oswald to JFK because she worked as a researcher for JFK when he was a senator but I think when she was working for it must have been the New York Times and she was out in the Moscow bureau she interviewed Lee Harvey Oswald when he defected for a short amount of time to the Soviet Union so I got to speak with her and there was lots of conspiracy theories around her of whether or not she had set him up with the CIA and and everything else but tell us take us in because I don't even know who who was it who killed Lee Harvey Oswald okay well it- Everybody, well, I think certainly of my generation, um, everybody remembers where they were, 22nd of November 1963, when they heard that JFK had been assassinated in Dallas. Kennedy was no fool, and he knew the risks he was running. And as with Julius Caesar, a lot of people tried to persuade him not to go to Dallas, and certainly not to do an Archduke Franz Ferdinand and ride in an open-top car, which is what he did. You know, he'd been pushing through civil rights legislation. He'd got plenty of enemies. Even some senior Democrats were saying to him, don't do this in Dallas. There were posters put out by the American Nazi party with wanted for treason and pictures of JFK. And he said to Jackie Kennedy, his wife, we're heading into nut country. So JFK would have been well aware of the risks that they were taking. And when he got to the Dealey Plaza, um, shots rang out and the person who got the blame was Lee Harvey Oswald. The thought was that he had shot Kennedy from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. And later that day, Lee Harvey Oswald also killed a police officer. Then it gets a bit murky. Oswald was arrested in a movie theatre, some said with rather suspicious ease. Oswald said, I'm a patsy, I'm a fall guy, implying that, okay, even if I was holding the gun, there's a lot more to this. And as you say, he there was this bizarre thing that he'd been in Russia. He was a, a ruthless loner, age 24, petty criminal, ex-Marine, according to some accounts, a really good shot. 
according to other accounts, a pretty average shot. He'd gone to Russia, acquired a Russian wife. Left his wife as well, of course, treated her terribly. Came back to America, was sort of let in again with what some people saw as suspicious ease. So lots of strange things around Lee Harvey Oswald. Anyway, he's arrested and... On the 24th of November, so two days after the assassination, he is going to be moved from the city to the county jail. And far from this being a kind of secure operation, the whole the world's press is told about this. And as as Oswald is being moved, there's an extraordinary media scrum. And out of the media scrum emerges a man called Jack Ruby, who shoots Lee Harvey Oswald dead And this is on live television. So this is the first assassination that I'm aware of that appears on live television. And Ruby is almost as strange a character as Oswald. You know, nightclub owner, rumoured to have close links with the mob, died of cancer in 1967, but claimed that he'd been injected with cancer cells while he was in prison. I can't offer any insight as to whether Lee Harvey Oswald did it or not. Um, One figure I saw was more than a thousand books have been written on this topic. One little interesting thing, in 2017, a whole pile of new documents were due to be released, and some were released, and it it revealed, for example, that Oswald had closer links with the KGB than we'd perhaps realised. But at the very last minute, hundreds of documents were pulled and not released. So there's more conspiracy to come. We have done episodes on this on the podcast before, and we've actually had members of the JFK White House on to tell us about what it was like that day that he was assassinated and their own thoughts about who was responsible. And, you know, I myself, I think I've interviewed four members of the JFK White House over the years, and, um, well, I've got my, my own theories on what happened there. But, you know, this is a history podcast, so it won't go too much into conspiracies. But it is fascinating. Fascinating to learn that that Jack Ruby goes in there and while this is all broadcast to the world's media, he shoots and takes the life of Lee Harvey Oswald and at the same time takes away a public trial and takes away all those answers that we continue to demand to this day. Yeah, uh, and um, obviously a number of people have pointed to how convenient that might have been for some people in America at the time. I don't know what you could possibly mean, John. Well, thank you so much for your time, for taking us through this fascinating history. Now, I know that you have a book on this, and I know that our listeners are going to want to read more, because there's so many other fascinating examples that you bring up in your work. So tell us, what is the name of the book, and where can we buy it? The book's called Assassin's Deeds, a history of assassination from ancient Egypt to the present day. And you can buy it um, in all good bookshops, hopefully some bad ones too, and on the usual online platforms. John, thank you again for your time. And if you do find out who killed JFK, (laughs) let us know and we'll get you back on the podcast. Thank you, James. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.